Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have two representatives from Fresno State's WET Center. WET stands for Water, Energy, and Technology. Our representatives are Benjamin Francis, Growth Operating Partner, and Samuel Fairbanks, Community Engagement and Outreach Specialist. Francis's key experience includes investment analyst functions, establishing a successful accelerator program, working one-on-one with ventures to secure funding and growth opportunities. Francis has successfully developed and launched the Wet Center's Accelerator Program, the only accelerator in the CSU system, and has graduated multiple successful companies. Francis holds a Master of Science in Finance from Vanderbilt University and a BA in Entrepreneurship from Fresno State. Samuel Fairbanks is the Community Engagement and Outreach Specialist. Fairbanks is the Wet Center's on-the-ground point person responsible for identifying and cultivating the participation of community stakeholders, partners, and students. He develops, implements, and provides oversight for outreach and engagement activities to solicit and strengthen community interaction. Fairbanks holds a Bachelor of Arts in History and a Master of Arts in Education, Administration, and Leadership, both from Fresno State. He has 10-plus years of experience interacting with a wide range of groups and a deep passion for the Central Valley. He is also a proud downtown Fresno resident. This is one of the most optimistic conversations I've had about the state of ag and innovation in the Central Valley, and it is endlessly fascinating. Please enjoy our conversation, and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best! Sam and Ben, where do you guys like to eat in Fresno? Yeah, I'll go for it. So our center is located at Fresno State. So I think I got to, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Fresno State favorites. So Don Pepe is number one for me. Spicy spicy shrimp burrito. It's all these places I'm mentioning are also walking distance from our office, which is dangerous. And it hurts my, my wallet and my waistline at times. But Don Pepe is my number one. And then, of course, Doghouse, Mad Duck. Wahoo's all the Maya cinema spots. I think we're we're blessed with some good food over here. Absolutely. Yeah, Sam's right. That right right down here, we've got some amazing restaurants. For myself, I'll go with a small business that I've really enjoyed recently, Sabor on Palm. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very good restaurant. I believe that's a I believe I've met the owner once just working there. So really great restaurant. Can't recommend it enough. So that's my favorite place. Favorite place to eat as of right now. And Sabor used to be like in Fig Garden, right? And then they moved to that weird building that has that weird shape yeah. that I was trying to figure out who was going to do what with. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah. That's I, I've been to Don Pepe's. I've been to Doghouse. Uh, I haven't been to Sabor. So what's your order at Sabor? Oh man, I've got a few things. There's a few dishes I like, but their bread pudding's amazing. I'll just throw that out there. They do that very well. Their drinks are really good. Obviously, they're they're. Dishes are excellent. The ingredients are nice and it's or high quality and the way that they put things together is just, well, I'm not a, I'm not a food expert by any means, but when I go in there, I tend to leave pretty happy. One more thing on food before we transition to talking about wet, sure. uh, you know, Doghouse has made some changes over the years. Some I've been more excited about and less excited about what's the state of their pulled pork sandwich and their tri-tip sandwich. For a while, I know they were going like thicker cut and then they had the sauce on, sauce off. And I, I don't know. I I just, 
because it for me doghouse is kind of like a nostalgic place a little bit when i visited fresno before i moved here that was the first place i was taken to and it feels like it's gone through all these i mean the sauce containers have gotten smaller which is fair mm-hmm. I, I think they should be smaller because they used to just give you a vat uh, <laughs> if you wanted ranch or barbecue sauce they would just say all right here's a gallon of it and i i, I appreciate that they made them smaller is doghouse the same as it used to be I agree that it's definitely gone through seasons, maybe has to do with supply chain and how much tri-tip they can get. But as of recent, those tri-tip sandwiches are probably a good four or five inches thick. Those are are still amazing. The pulled pork, I haven't, I haven't tried the pulled pork, but I remember as a broke college student, I went to Fresno State myself and the Firebird, the like the crispy chicken sandwich used to be, I think $5.15 or something like that. And it's up to about seven now, but still, still a good deal inflation considered. Absolutely. So let's jump into talking about the wet center. I have a lot of questions, obviously, about kind of origins and structure. So it was created in 2007. What were the kind of problems or circumstances or the environment in which it was created? What was it trying to address? Well, obviously, the focus was primarily on water technologies at the time. Our parent organization, I'll go a little bit more into structure a little bit later, but Center for Irrigation Technology, excellent reputation of not only being a source from an academic standpoint, as far as what's going on in irrigation and and developments, but also from a testing and lab standpoint as well, too. They have the Sprinkler Lab and other facilities that they've, they've done testing since, you know, well, well before I've been here, tens, decades before 2007. So the wet center had a focus primarily on water technologies when it was first originated, which made sense with the Center for Irrigation Technology. But the wet center really came about with the development of the wet lab here. So going a little about little bit into where I see some of the origins where wet center really got going was with the development of this lab and then the development of the incubator building here. So Sam, what what streets are these again? I always mess this up. Barstow and... What was it again? Chestnut, Barstow Chestnut, right at the Excellent. right at the newer roundabout is where our center is at. Excellent, thank you. Yeah, sometimes I want to say Cedar or something like that. So I, I've messed it up before. So Barstow and Chestnut, thank you. So the development of this building is a is a physical representation of the center with the focus on you have one half that's focused on the lab testing. So you have all sorts of testing going on right over there. And then in our office right here, we have the business offices. So this is where we host a lot of our programming. Startup founders can can get an office here, use this space, use the conference room. And the development of this building, I would say, is is definitely the physical manifestation of the wet center and what it can do. To me, again, I can't speak too much about the history. I, I just wasn't here, so I don't know all the details, but I'll speak more about, I've been here for six years, so I can speak a little bit about my time and on. The Wet Center really came alive with the winning of the Blue Tech Valley Award with the California Energy Commission. That really strengthened Fresno State and the Wet Center's approach to being a leader in energy and water technologies throughout the Central Valley and beyond, partnering with other universities and, and other community partners to assist entrepreneurs in our region and also tie in with resources that can help them commercialize and grow their business. So. I'm going to jump in real quick. Yeah. So can you kind of elaborate on the relationship between Fresno State and the wet center? Like, is it purely a financial or administrative relationship? How does it work? What's the connection? Well, the, the wet center is is under Fresno State Foundation. 
So from that standpoint, it is a part of Fresno State. There's obviously benefits going both ways. Wet Center is a uh, grant and privately funded entity. So it's not from state budget side. So our funding comes from state and federal and other other sources as, as well as private sources as well. And the Fresno State Foundation is great in assisting us with an admin administrative side. So yeah, we are a part of Fresno State. We are under the Center for Irrigation Technology. That is our parent organization. And CWI, the California Water Institute as well. So Oh, that's a little bit about the structure. I, I could probably, we might have a diagram somewhere, Sam. I don't know if you have that somewhere, but anyways, that's, that's kind board of the charts are always fun. Yeah. I love yeah, a good yeah. chart, but I, what is the, what is the kind of rough breakdown between, you know, public funding, like grants and things like that versus private funding. And who are these individuals that are providing private funding? Is it investment groups or private individuals, ag interests? We are primarily grant funded just by the nature of our work. We're focused primarily on our entrepreneurs and helping them, but we do have some private funding. Typically our private funding will come in the form of a grant from an, from an institution. So let's think banks and other organizations or family offices that they may have solicitations for grants supporting clean technologies or whatever else. So we do have funding from private institutions in that manner, but the majority of our funding does come from public institutions, California Energy Commission, the EDA, groups like that. Okay. Let's talk about some of your services before we jump into specific topics. Let's talk about advising services first, kind of consulting, if you will. Sure. How do your advisors support the companies that you work with? And how do your advising services differ from someone like McKinsey, for example, where you come in and provide traditional business consulting? Sure. Now, Jordan, this may be a little off topic, but I think the best way to approach it is if I could walk through kind of the, the we've got a journey. So we kind of take a startup from the beginning and then I can walk walk you through kind of the end. If you're good with that, I can yeah, absolutely there. So the Wet Center really is designed to help companies from the pre-revenue, maybe a little bit past an idea on a napkin stage, all the way up to doing about, let's just say a million dollars in, in, in revenue a year. So what that process looks like, our programs, how they come together, referring to the advising, that's more in the later stage. But if you don't mind, I'll just run through the whole yeah. thing. So at the beginning, there's typically, when a founder approaches us, it's typically with a, hey, I've done some research. I've, I've tested this technology or this idea. I've seen a little bit here. I've done some research. How do I turn this into a business? And a lot of times it's not as simple as like, how do I get customers? It's, we have this idea. I think I can sell it. I think the, everyone's going to buy it. Problem is you got to have, this is a science-based sector. This isn't a consumer business where you're buying based on how the branding is or everything else. You have to have proven results. So there's a few areas that we specifically help with. So first and foremost, we we have programming designed for testing and demonstration. So it's imperative that um, if you have a technology, you're not only testing it or demonstrating it and showing that it can say what it, you say it does. But in addition to that, doing that in the community you want to grow into. So if you want to grow within the Central Valley, you probably should choose a partner to do a demo with that will help validate some of the claims that you're making. Obviously, we've worked, we do we do some of that work here with the Fresno State Farm and the CIT plots. CIT is referenced to Center for Irrigation Technology. But we have other partners as well, such as Reedley College and College of Sequoias, and they've done plenty of work uh, through the years assisting and helping companies, founders with that type of early stage testing and demonstrations. So that's one area that is, I would say, difficult for the average founder to come in and navigate. We help 
walk them through that process to make sure that they have the highest chance of success of actually setting up a demonstration site. Can I jump in real quick? Yeah, so, go ahead. So Please. you're talking about the early stage kind of selection, the selection process. Right. What metrics do you use to determine whether you want to work with someone? You mentioned, you know, kind of revenue projections, but is there kind of like a rubric for how you evaluate businesses and determining whether to work with an individual founder? I'm thinking about some some organizations like Y Combinator, if we're talking about founding in the technology industry where they have, you know, very specific parameters for who they want to work with. And they, you know, do this, you know, even psychological analysis on founders to determine if they are the kind of people that can lead an organization. So how do you approach that? So I would say we do a little bit less on the, just the pure founder, like, can they scale this company to a billion dollars type assessment or, you know, whatever the number might be a hundred million, 50 million, obviously for a group like Y Combinator, they need a company to accomplish a certain size within a certain time frame. Since we're not necessarily making the investment, but we are working more from an academic side, I view our vetting process, at least in it's different in a later stage, but in the early stage, it's more along the lines of like, what is the science behind the technology? Is this something that is valid? Is this something that we can prove? Is this something within the scope of what we can handle on the flip side too? Is this something that people are going to believe? Is this something that is is commonplace? And do we see this having a commercial commercial value where people will eventually adopt this? Or is this something so out of left field or the numbers don't make sense that there's really no return on investment for it for whatever customer base they're looking for. So we evaluate that. Obviously we do some basic vetting around the founder themselves. Like what's their experience? Do they have the right mentality on growing the business? We focus a lot on sales and, and getting customers just like every other venture place. But we we do also focus primarily on the, the science side of things. And we have a team of experts here on staff that will help evaluate and vet these technologies for us and, and make sure that they do pass a certain bar of criteria. Okay. So yeah. Can I hop in real quick on that one too? I think something that sets us apart is we are a nonprofit 501c3. We have, we would consider ourselves a community development organization that cares about Fresno and cares about developing businesses. And so as opposed to maybe a for-profit accelerator that would see an idea and say, well, we're not going to put any equity into that. That's not going to make us money in the long run. The wet center, we don't take equity out of companies. So I've seen our staff take the time to sit down with maybe a quote unquote bad idea. And we have the time and we care about companies, you know, whether they, we see them as scalable and profitable, or if they need kind of that extra advising and push. And I've seen Ben do this many times, sit down and have hours of conversation to help develop the idea and not just say, eh, this idea isn't profitable onto the next one type of thing. So that's kind of the privilege of having the Fresno State connection and the community development mindset as well. Absolutely. Let's jump into a little bit about the the kind of the culture and ecosystem of innovation in ag and the adjacent fields that you guys work in. So aside from you guys, where does agricultural innovation happen? You know, if you're not in that ecosystem, like how does it happen? Is it is it large scale operations like wonderful farms finding efficiencies? I, I'm I'm just imagining kind of like in this kind of mythic American tinkering society where there's guys just saying, oh, if we just turn the sprinkler just a little bit this way and get this right angle. So where outside of you guys' work, where does where does ag innovation happen? Do you want to take this one, Sam, or do you want me to go for it? Yeah, you can hop in first and I'll I'll add anything. So where where we typically see it happening is when a, a tech a technology 
company comes in with the concept of, or this may not answer the question, Jordan, but this is the best way I could put it is it typically really takes off when you've built a technology that one is easy to use, simple to understand. And then it's also something that doesn't require this expertise, very specific technical domain to where within the operations of, let's say on the ag side, a grower, various people that are, are working out, in the, whether they're out in the field or they're or managing this side, they shouldn't have a PhD in computer science, for example, to be, to have to run it or understand what to do with the, the data or fix it or, you know, whatever else. So from that standpoint, that is a, a number one criteria. Number two is something that is just simple, but also cost efficient. A lot of times we deal with a lot of great solutions that are not only complex, which is problem number one, but part two is they may help with a return on investment, but it's not really a priority of the grower at the time. So it's not something they want to invest the time and energy and the staff training to make sure that, you know, we're, we're saving. Yeah. Maybe we have a great ROI on this one area of our PNL, but it's such a small area. It's not really our, our biggest pain point or our focus right now. And so there, there's kind of this understanding that you got to build something simple, cost efficient that scales throughout the whole farm is not overly complex or labor intensive to implement or manage. And if you can nail those things down, that's typically when we see a technology actually do well and growers adopt it. There is obviously a difference between selling to a wonderful, which will have one set of criteria compared to you know a grower with a hundred acres. And the way we find is where companies can be the most successful is if you can sell to the grower with a hundred acres to the grower to, let's say a few thousand acres and beyond, you can, if you can do that range, you've probably figured out quite a few things as far as the ability to scale. And that doesn't work for all technologies, but if you're doing an IOT or data or whatever, if you can do that full range, then you've probably built something that is truly scalable, cost efficient and simple enough to use. And, and obviously could, can provide value. So those are typically the things that I would say are the key indicators of something that's going to be successful or not. Yeah. And then as far as kind of statewide innovation structure, I think we're at a really pivotal point in California's history right now, as far as just seeing funding coming into the Central Valley. So some examples of that, Ben mentioned earlier, the Blue Tech Valley initiative that we're the lead on. And so we're connected with over 30 counties throughout California. Uh, kind of anchor partners are UC Davis, Humboldt, in Bakersfield, University of Bakersfield, CSU Bakersfield. So these are essentially hubs all across the, the state to make sure that any new idea is caught early on and supported and funded so that no matter where you are in the state, no matter how early on in your idea you are, whether you're a grower, kind of like you mentioned, Jordan, of the, if I place this regular this exact direction and turn it this way, this new, you know, coming up with a new technology that is scalable and they, they can make make it into a business, making sure that there's outreach throughout every corner of California and making sure that that funding is there and those innovators can be supported. And then here in Fresno, the F3 initiative, which I'm sure a lot of listeners are, are familiar with, is a part of the Build Back Better agenda and $65 million being invested into Central Valley between Fresno State and UC Merced focused on food innovation. So this is everything from training farm workers in ag tech uh, to make sure that people who are working in the fields aren't left behind with all this new technology coming in. So I know Reedley College is leading an initiative on the ag tech side where they're actually going out to farms and creating curriculum around what people working on the farms are already doing and turning that into a degree 
helping them work on these new technologies, whether it's autonomous tractors or the autonomous picking technologies, there's going to need to be people who work on those as well. So kind of just repurposing some of that work and some training. And we're seeing immense amounts of federal and state funding going into this, which is, I think, very exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you guys know, but there's a bill in Congress called the America Grows Act, which proposes increasing funding for the Agricultural Research Service. Do you think this is something that'll be beneficial for our community? I know that they have 8,000 employees for the whole United States in the the research service, so it doesn't seem like it's even at the scale where it needs to be with the proposed funding, but do you think that would be beneficial? I mean, I can definitely speak to Fresno State and our connections with UC Merced and the other universities I just mentioned. And I, I truly believe that any extra funding that can be inputted into the Central Valley, into Fresno, is going to be put to good use. And we're seeing that already with this funding coming in. So I have I have faith in, in Fresno State kind of as our anchor institution. And Fresno State, like Ben mentioned, we just have that reputation in the Valley, especially with the ag community. If you throw in an ag event here on campus, you're going to see all the major growers come out. There's just that connection there. So I feel confident that you know, money can get to the right people and that that innovation can be continually spurred. Yeah. I had a conversation with Ryan Jacobson a while ago where we talked about the kind of bifurcation of the ag industry, where you have these kind of boutique growers that, you know, have a small farm, but are very good at branding and reaching out to their customers individually. I'm thinking about like the Masamotos, for example. And then you have these large scale operations where it's really just a big corporation that has intense systems of scale. Do you think that the technology innovation you're seeing is going to kind of further further accelerate this bifurcation to the point where those kind of middle, you know, 100 acre farmers, for example, are going to be left behind? Or is this technology going to assist more of those farmers in the middle, enable them to exist? I think it depends. I would say that the more the technology, most technologies that are coming out on the ag side are going to primarily help the larger scale farmers do their jobs better. And a lot of technologies seem to mainly benefit larger scale growers in the operations. If you have a hundred acres, for example, the ability to monitor that and, and really dive down into the details and make sure every, you know, not square inch, but just for the, the sake of a discussion is, is, is monitored and, and handled, you know, compared to a 15,000 acre operation, it's just going to be more difficult. Obviously no one's going to care more than the grower themselves. So if, if you're talking about from an ownership standpoint, the, the grower that has a hundred acres is, is really going to pay attention to that. And it seems like a lot of the technologies is helping the 15,000 acre grower, for example, manage their operation better and more efficiently, because obviously the more you scale things, there's just going to be inefficiencies creeping in regardless with anything. So I, I think a lot of the technologies will assist the larger scale growers produce more efficiently, but also Potentially, we're seeing on the technology side focuses on regenerative ag. So there's a lot of benefits there as well to make the larger scale growers just not only more efficient, but potentially more sustainable as well. I I would say, though, on the smaller scale growers, there really is a a push to get more technologies in there and assisting them with their needs. And I don't I can't speak for everyone, but I would say most people in the industry do not want to see the, you know, your, your small business owner, for lack of better terms, grower going away anytime soon. I know that there's been a big shift in the industry with 
a lot of farms selling out and big farms getting bigger and smaller farms not really popping up as much as they used to. But I, I do see that there is innovation in the food tech space that consumers are starting to look at. They want to know who's growing their food. They want to know who's working on it. They want to see that it's sustainable. And uh, there's a value on having us. There's certain things that a small grower can do that large scalers just large scale growers just can't. And um, there's benefits to the consumer with that as well. So I, I think as we see more channels popping up on the food tech side that will help growers connect, small scale growers connect with their buyers directly or in new ways, I, I think that we will find that there may be some new demand that can crop up over the, the next five years or so, specifically for the small scale growers and what they do. So we'll, we'll just have to see on that. But generally speaking, most ag technologies are built with scale in mind. So I'll leave that there. That makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about labor because you brought it up for a second before we transition to more specific topics. You know, there's always been scares related to technology taking away jobs. And we know there's some truth in that, but then there's also the truth that it also creates jobs. Now, what I'm seeing as the issue here is, is education in the valley. Do we have the educated workforce that can work with some of this new technology that's being created? You know, I mean, picking before you have picking machines, you know, it's, it's hand work. But if you have machines that requires engineers and mechanics that have training in order to fix them, I mean, that's primarily their job is to make sure the machines continue to work. So does the Central Valley have the educational talent and resources to prepare for this kind of transition? Well, I'll probably, Sam, I'll, I'll have you kind of speak on the educational side. I know you'll, you'll have some good insights there. I, I do want to make one comment. Now, granted, I'm not a grower myself. I'm not hiring. So I'm just going to share what I've heard. But the issue around labor tends to be not that it's expensive alone. I mean, obviously it is an expense, but it tends to be that we just can't find enough people. Like the supply is just so limited as things have scaled and grown. It's difficult to find enough people to do the work. So some of it is less about replacing jobs just for the return on investment side of things and just getting things to pencil. I know there's a there's an element of that, of course, but it seems like a lot of the push is we can't find people and it's such an effort to fill these positions and, and stay on time. And just with the seasonality, there's just this huge spike of we need all this labor right now, right here today. That's a huge, that's a huge demand on these these companies. So I do want to say that, but that's that's typically what I hear. Again, that's just from my standpoint. But Sam, just turn it over to you. Do we have the educational resources here to help students leave leave college ready to go and work on these technologies? And maybe what are we doing about it? Yeah, sure. I could speak more to maybe the the folks who aren't currently enrolled in college. Something I mentioned earlier was the F3 initiative and the kind of the hands-on learning experience that's being offered. So the a part of Fresno F3, the Fresno Merced Future of Food Initiative, they did a huge survey where they, they partnered with the Farm Workers Coalition in Fresno and surveyed farm workers and asked all sorts of questions about, do you wish you could go to college? You know, what was the highest level of education you received? What are your future financial goals? Things like that. An overwhelming majority of people who are working on farms mentioned that they're interested in rece receiving further education. And so a part of that is kind of what I mentioned with Reedley College, partnered with UC Merced and Fresno State, obviously, is this initiative where we're creating this hands-on 
learning-based, work-based degree where staff is going out to fields where new technology is being implemented, helping farm workers understand the technology, taking them through a, a curriculum that's based on what they're already doing and training them in, in the new technology that's coming out and then offering this, this service for free to, to the people who are already in the fields, already understanding the agricultural ecosystem and are literally boots on the ground. Um, so as far as kind of in a new innovative way that I could see scaling throughout the state and throughout the country really is that kind of hands-on work experience that's leading to, to further education. But I think we've got to get creative, especially kind of in this COVID, post-COVID area where we're seeing enrollment dramatically decrease, especially in the STEM areas and for engineering and, and the folks who would be working on this innovative technology, we got to get creative. And I think that's a great example that's being spearheaded here in Fresno and recognized in the federal government for those that work that's already being done. Yeah, it feels like there's a macro question here and it's not just ag. I mean, it's we just had a conversation with one of the head surgeons at CRMC and he was talking about, you know, the amount of doctors that we need. I mean, 30% of the doctors that are in Fresno are set to retire in the next five years. Traveling mm -hmm. nurses, right? We got a bunch of traveling nurses during COVID. Most of them have gone. We have a nursing shortage. So there's a lot of talent shortages in the area and we've got to figure out ways to attract and pull. One question before we jump into water as our first uh, kind of subtopic here. What what is your kind of global picture of the driving force behind a lot of these companies? Is it... I? I want to create a product. I want to innovate. I want to make a profitable company. Is it, I want to help ag continue to be a profitable industry here in Fresno? Am I a socially minded person that's looking for ways to support labor in the ag industry? Am I thinking about climate change? What, what do, what are some of the founders that approach you guys? What, are, what's their goals? What are, why are they doing what they do? Well, I would say that interesting enough, you covered I would say 90% of the, the combination of what most founders approach with. Obviously, there's an incentive for making money. You know, if you're going to found a business, obviously there's there's a portion of that. But a lot of our founders have a tremendous passion for the industry. I would say the especially especially on the ag side of things, there's a significant focus on we want to help growers become successful. A lot of founders in ag tech. A lot of times they'll have a personal connection to ag just from whether it's, you know, their, their grandparents had a farm or they grew up on a farm themselves or, you know, whatever it might be. So they, they have a, they have a passion to apply their skill sets to potentially help farmers. Now, does the technology always turn out? Not necessarily, but the passion is still there and the, the interest is there. And if you're going into ag tech, I would say most people that go into ag tech really go into it with a purpose and a desire to help the industry. I, I don't think it's something where people are going in purely just for the the profits involved. There's you definitely have to have a passion for the industry to justify going into that. And on the water and energy side, a lot of that I would say is more focused on focused primarily on like what you're saying, like climate change, sustainability. But again, the 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 passion is in the right place. They're focusing on the right things. They're not going in there saying, "Hey, can we just make a quick buck here and just come in here, turn something around, flip it, sell it, and then move on." A lot of it is done with the right intentions. And that is something refreshing from my standpoint, just dealing with founders that I, a lot of the passion that we have here at the wet center is because our founders have passion. If they came in here just simply wanting to do, let's say soulless business transactions just for their own, own development. I, I think that you'd see our culture not necessarily thrive the way that it does. Makes sense. 
I'll circle that that back into your education question as well. We actually last year received some prize funding through the Department of Energy, and we ran a student competition with Fresno State students and Central Valley students in the greater area. And I think for the future, the the future of entrepreneurs, we see a huge focus on sustainability and kind of like Ben mentioned, just that part for the environment and for your community specifically. So we we put those teams through a, a training program. They're able to pitch their ideas. And we actually, with that prize funding through the Department of Energy, we were able to give out $12,000 to winning teams. And the, that focus was very specific to decarbonization, sustainability, microgrid technology in Fresno, solar to underserved communities. So it was cool to kind of see where, where the future future is heading and where students' heads are at right now in this space. Yeah, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second. I What drives me bonkers is we've had a lot of discussions recently about the departure of manufacturing from the United States, and we can see it in the numbers. But for whatever reason, people in their heads, when they think manufacturing, they think like Ford, and they think an assembly line, they think producing something in kind of a repetitive capacity. And they don't think about ag tech as manufacturing, but that's what it is. Manufacturing, I mean, the word comes from, you know, the Latin, which means to make with your hands, but obviously the world is changing. Manufacturing is adapting and it's becoming something else. And I think what you guys are doing is you guys are supporting manufacturing. And that might be a way to frame it as well, because I think that's really what it is at its core. And so now what I want to do is jump into each of the three categories of WET to talk a little bit about the problems and then some of the companies that you guys are excited about that you're working with that address those. So let's start with water. So recently, some local politicians have been discussing water because we have a lot of it right now. The big melt is going on, which I'm very sad about because I actually, when it's hot here, when I moved here from the LA area, I was like, what am I going to do during the summer when it's brutal? And I really love to float on the rivers. I think it's a lot of fun. It's unbearably cold, but you know, you get the sun on you, it feels great. But they closed all the rivers this weekend. So I'm a little sad about it, but obviously it's a good thing because it means we have a lot of water flowing through them. Um, And then there's what recently one politician said that we need to build more water retention, you know, reservoirs and dams and things like that. Obviously he knows, and I know, and we all know that our infrastructure is crumbling and that before we build a new dam, we have to probably fix the 17 that are, you know, having issues because cement doesn't last forever. And so those kind of big macro ideas to solve water problems seem kind of difficult to manage and require a lot of funding from the state and coordination. So I much prefer to focus on kind of smaller scale things, you know, ways that we can approach to saving water. So can you discuss maybe a couple of the companies that you work with that are doing interesting things with water and approaching this problem from different ways? Sure. So obviously one of the the biggest areas of savings is in the irrigation process. So a lot of the technologies we've dealt with are focusing more on smart irrigation. So using various sensors in the field, using controllers on specific parts of the the drip line and, and obviously controlling some aspects of the pump or efficiencies with the pump. The whole objective is how do we make sure that we don't lose water on the way that we irrigate? And then secondly, we time the irrigation cycles to where it has the most efficient. We put down a drop, the plant takes up a drop. How do we have that most efficient transfer of water from our irrigation process into the plant itself? So we're not necessarily wasting. Now, 
with that in mind, that's that's one way we've saved water. The second way, which is a big deal, it's not necessarily saving, but being efficient is we deal with a lot of technologies that are focusing on water trading. So water trading systems, I know there's legislation that's changing there as well. So that should open up a, a whole array of opportunities for growers to receive the water they need. Um, Can you define water trading systems real quick for listeners who don't know? Yeah. The, the simple way I would put it is, uh, you know, if it's like a platform, so think of like fake Facebook marketplace, but with your water rights. So that's probably a terrible way to put it, but that's the closest I can think of, except there's a lot of complexities around, you know, who can trade water, where, uh, what are the laws on this? What channels are you going to use to move water? How, how is that going to necessarily work? The complexities are well above my pay grade, but I know that when the legislation changes and I know that they're working on that as the technologies improve, that will open up tremendous opportunity for growers to kind of fulfill the need. And then if there's an excess water, we can trade water to those that need it more. So you have this equilibrium that can kind of balance out with that demand a little better. Secondly, I know there's a lot of work being done on, this is outside of technology, but I know there's a lot of on the education side, there's for growers, there's a lot of work on happening around water management. So how do we be more efficient with, you know, whether using the pump or surface irrigation water, what are some of the the equipment that we're using that could be more efficient, not only just from an energy side, but you know, there's we're we're managing our aquifer better, for example, with Sigma now in place, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. There's there's definitely a need to focus more on how do we just from a legal standpoint, how do we how do we manage our water resources better? And obviously someone like Ryan Jacobson can really speak to something like that. But it goes into, okay, these are the requirements and then how can technology help us meet those goals? And, and yeah. we have a lot of founders that want to assist with that. And what, what, what's the incentive for a farmer to want to be more efficient with their water beyond legal stipulations? I mean, what is in it for them? Let's say they have a pump and they're pumping as much as they need. What, why are they incentivized to be more efficient? Well, it depends on who the, the, the grower is and you know their perspective on things. But one is there's kind of the quote unquote, the good steward of the earth. I mean, there's, there are effects. If you pump too much water, you mess with the aquifer. I forget what it's the word, but sinkage pretty much to where you can have issues with the actual ground itself. You want to, I know a lot of growers, you know, they, whether they grew up on the land or they, they love the land that they're on. So they want to be good stewards of what they have. So there's, there's just this efficiency around, hey, we know there's limited water. We know the water table's lower than ever. We know we're running out. We know there's permanent damage happening to the aquifers. I A lot of them understand that and they want to focus on, okay, well, how do I make sure that I'm still producing the crop that's needed by, you know, massive demand, right? By the whole world, not just the Central Valley. I mean, our products go everywhere throughout the world. They want to fulfill that and take care of, take care of a lot of people all over. But how do I do that while still, you know, taking care of the land, taking care of our water resources. So that's, I would say that that's, they, they see the big picture and knowing that the environmental impact, it's not just a feel good thing. It's a real tangible, it's a real tangible effect that, that is happening. So a lot of them, they, they see the importance of how do we stay that efficiency efficient on the, on the legal side of things. Obviously that is, that is typically the biggest enforcement of it. And, and in some cases, I know growers may have different perspectives as far as the effectiveness of it and if it's right. But overall, I, I don't think that there's a grower that's necessarily thinking we don't really care about damage to land or that we're running out of water. So that's the, that's kind of how I'd answer that. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. I, would, 
Go ahead. Sorry, Jordan. I just throw in the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which is passed through California legislation as well, or SIGMA, which is the big kind of scary word in, in irrigation right now. But like Ben mentioned, as far as legality and kind of things being cracked down on, uh, if your pump isn't as efficient as it should be, that's kind of a huge motivation as well, because it's going to be monitored much more closely at, at the legislative level. So that's a big kind of inspiration for increased pumping efficiency as well. And there's some amazing programs here in Fresno. We work closely with the Asian Business Institute, the Fresno Center. These are organizations that are helping those small-scale farmers switch out pumps for newer technology for free through state funding. So obviously we have tons of small-scale farms here just in our backyard in Fresno growing strawberries and fruit and all sorts of things. So there's funding out there through those community-based organizations to help with that kind of more efficient transition. I have a proposed legislation. This is my personal legislation. I think that every farmer should have to cut a hole in their crop right in the center of their acreage and live right in the center of wherever they operate. So whatever externalities happen as a result of their production system, they should have to experience it firsthand. And I know a lot of farmers do live on their land, but there's a lot that don't. And I think that would be, you know, if whatever you're doing, you need to experience it firsthand in your daily life. So it's a little bit snarky, but that's what I think we should do. <laughs> All right, let's jump to energy. Um, we're going to talk about scalability and modularity, which I think is one of the things that is a big kind of buzzword right now is modularity. So the reason why solar has been, had such a dramatic logarithmic kind of incline in terms of people being able to access is the modularity of it. It's easy to kind of produce at scale and mass produce. Now, obviously there's some challenges there too with financing. And that's why the government got involved to help subsidize initially until it could ramp up to module to this place where you could produce at scale. Um, there's some other challenges, right? From the tractors we use, you know, the fuel it costs to produce a lot of the things that we need. So what are some interesting areas along kind of the energy side that you're seeing? And it can be ag adjacent, doesn't necessarily need to be ag. Yeah. So obviously we, we work with technologies that I would say most people think of when you think of energy, which would be batteries. So we work with battery, battery technologies. I mean, for example, we have a company that takes spent, you know, EV batteries and is able to repurpose them into energy storage solutions and for, for manufacturing or food processing, whatever it might be. So we, we deal with that and other software systems that will help with the efficiency of, of timing, you know, battery usage and, and different power rates and stuff like that. So there, there's plenty of things well over my head that we work with on the battery and also just energy efficiency side from a software standpoint. But again, it can it, energy, the way we define it is, is also part of water and ag and kind of that whole nexus. But as Sam mentioned, like with the pump, like an inefficient pump or an outdated pump might necessarily not be the most efficient with its energy and just having the resources there to help with the funding of sw switching those out improves, you know, as a state, it improves our, it decreases our overall energy usage as a result. So a lot of things that we're seeing in the ag space will be more around, you know, when you use the energy, when you use the energy to like use a pump, how do we make sure that that water is, is used properly? Because just reducing your water water usage. I mean, if you think about it, think of all the energy saved from getting that water to the farm or pumping it up, even if it's not groundwater, but surface water, there's a lot of energy used to transport that water. So making it as efficient as possible when it gets there definitely saves along the way. So a lot of our technologies are on the 
I would say the efficiency side, but we also have technologies that are innovative on the production side as well. So, so obviously we deal with a lot of solar technologies that will you know, improve the efficiency of solar. And we even have technologies that will use ocean currents to produce energy or, or use canal currents to produce energy specifically for the farms. So th- there's quite, that's energy is such a broad subject. I think where we're headed as an organization is figuring out, okay, where is the best focus of resources within that energy space? How do we, where do we see the greatest opportunity and how can we assist with that process? And that's something that we're working on, but we've seen the range and there's a lot of cool projects going on. And I'm very optimistic that a lot of these technologies will make an impact over the next decade. So in addition to that, there's also technologies. We even have one technology that's using oil wells that are no longer in commission and they're using the general infrastructure to be an energy, a non-battery energy storage setup. Again, I can't really explain how they do it. I know it's a Stanford grad that's figuring out. And typically when the Stanford grads get involved, I just trust them on what they're saying a little bit more. And that's where our technical team comes in and helps vet things that are a little bit over my head from a technical standpoint. So there's a lot of creative innovations on the energy side. I would say for just the general listeners here that are interested in the energy space, ideas are everywhere right now. That's that's what's fascinating because I know we hear a lot. There's there's obviously a lot of opportunity in the battery side of things. I know electric vehicles are, are a heavy focus on, on energy, but there's, there's very creative concepts in energy storage, very creative concepts related to the grid, especially home usage of energy as well. And then of course, you know, just within industry, there's a lot of very unique creative takes. And I'm not sure which technologies are necessarily going to last the test of time over the next decade, but there's so many great concepts. And what's fascinating, Jordan, is there's so many technologies that all have a net energy savings or a net energy production. So they're they're just creating or reducing energy. You just have that net gain going on. So that's what's great is they, there's a ton out there. We'll see which ones actually scale up. There's a lot of variables involved with that, but we are seeing these ideas come from founders of all shapes and sizes and backgrounds. So that's that's also very cool to see. And the cool thing with the the company Ben mentioned working with Wells is they came from Stanford, came through the Wet Center, our advising and our our accelerator program. And we actually got them connected with the city of Bakersfield. Obviously there's a lot of wells, oil wells in use and not in use in Bakersfield. And they're actually stationed in Bakersfield now. And that's where their their operations are located. So kept it kept it in the valley, which is always a goal of ours. Exactly. Fascinating. That's really fascinating. Last one, technology. I listened to a great interview with the CEO of John Deere, where he talked about tractors are just computers now. And so uh, that <laughs> you need you need a you need a programmer more with your tractor than a mechanic these days. Where are we seeing innovations in the technology space, particularly in our area? You mean in the Central Valley? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm interested in in kind of that because I mean, there you know the technology sector is so diverse and wide ranging. I'm I'm curious what areas what we're going to see in terms of technology that'll benefit our region. Well, I would say, as you mentioned, going back to labor side a little bit here, and this is this isn't an uncommon perspective, but at least it's it's one that I share with many. The labor is is definitely in demand. Where the supply is just so short, we got to figure out some solutions on the labor side, and and obviously robotics is a big answer to that. So, we just held a big robotics event. Sam, do you remember the name of that? It was was it Fira? Fira. It's a, yeah, organization out of France who's 
been coming to the Central Valley to to throw these kind of ag tech focused events. So we we hosted them just right out here on the Fresno State Farm to showcase just all the amazing developments that are happening on the robotic side. So from sprayers to weeders to anything else you can imagine, the technology there is just incredible. And as soon as that becomes more of a a main scale on the robotic side, you're you will you know, according to the John Deere CEO, it's just, I, I think just in general, most of the hands and the operations in the field will eventually be determined by a programmer, not by a bunch of individuals eventually. What that does mean though, um, as well on the labor side. So one is that benefits the the valley and growers from the standpoint that we're reducing the cost and also the strain on the supply side of labor. But what that also means is that opens up opportunities because trust me, there's no shortage of hands. There's always something to be working on. It also allows our workforce to potentially become more educated. We're going to need servicing on this equipment. There's other areas within a farming operation that will require higher level of training and provide higher level of value at some point. So those things will be prioritized. And I think that from an economic standpoint in the region, you're going to see net benefits on both sides. I know that there's a concern about robots replacing or AI, you know, just in a general sense, replacing jobs. And I'm sure some of that will happen, but I think, I think it's the wrong perspective. I think we need to view these as tools and how do we, as as a general collective, utilize these tools to benefit our our processes and make make everything that we use on a daily basis, from the food we eat to the products we consume, whatever it might be, less intensive to produce. And then, as a result, how do we how do we train our our workforce to operate at a higher level? As a result of let's take care of these tasks so we can put people on higher prioritized areas. I, I think we're going to see more of that transition. There's just there's too many things to do. And it's not just in the ag industry, it's in all industries as well. So that that's how I see it. Yeah. I think something that makes me happy about that and makes me excited for the future of the Central Valley is these new technologies really aren't legitimized until they're brought to the Central Valley and demonstrated at World Ag Expo or at the Fresno State Farm. That's when it kind of starts to take off after it touches base here in you know the agricultural center of of the United States. So that makes me excited. And I think we can continue that kind of progression of those technologies being centered here in the Valley and tested and legitimized and then spread out. I know people hate questions that are around one of my favorite words, because it's just kind of one of those words that just sounds sophisticated prognostication, which basically just means getting your crystal ball out. So there's a lot of people that have pretty dark views about the future of the Central Valley, climate activists, certain business interests, you know, on all sides of the political spectrum, seeing, you know, oh, the all the water's going to go away because the state's redirecting it so we can have a couple salmons running up the river or salmon, that's, that's plural, <laughs> uh, no S. And then obviously climate activists think we're just going to drain all the aquifers and we're going to live, everyone in the Central Valley is going to live in a giant hole because the earth just collapsed down. Now, obviously, these are all kind of apocalyptic descriptions of the future that probably are just, you know, emotional responses to a lot of the challenges that we're facing, which makes a lot of sense. But what I'm asking you two to do in turn is abstract for a moment what you're seeing in terms of innovation, in terms of the people getting involved in industry here, and kind of give us a picture based on that information of where you see the Central Valley and Fresno specifically going, because it is changing, right? Innovation means change. 
right? Um, and you guys are helping innovation. So you're helping change. So where do you see that taking us? Well, again, I, I'm hoping I can give you a focused answer here, but the way I see it is I understand both sides, I guess, to an extent and, and why they, why they have their perspectives. And I, and there's probably truth in both, both thoughts, right? To me, I would say the answer is, is probably somewhere in the middle of that to where there are standpoints of, there are standpoints of, yeah, we need to be more efficient with our water from the the doom and gloom side of things. But that also means that as we get more efficient with our water, then there's greater efficiency and we could potentially curb some of these issues. And then on the other side, I, I do believe that over time, the Central Valley will get some of its water issues re relieved from an infrastructure standpoint. I, I think that eventually that will become a reality. So with these things happening, or at least that's what I see happening potentially, I think what we're going to find is one is the Central Valley is growing. So that there's there's a plus there. We we know the population is growing. We know that there's there's a, a a boom here. And we know that there's a big industry here. I mean, the ag industry is not just even within the scale of California, one of the biggest economies in the world. Our ag industry within California still ranks in one of the top industries. So with that in mind, that's not going away anytime soon. It, can it be reduced or changed by you know, certain legislation and things like Sigma to where some crops have to be pulled out because it's not in, you know, water efficient areas and there's just not enough water there. Sure. Could you argue that's a good or a bad thing? Sure. But at the end of the day, we're still going to have ag productivity within ag itself and, and water. We're seeing just an absolute explosion of innovation and technologies and efficiencies to where once we get these things sorted out, ag's going to be here and it's going to be here to stay. How How is it going to look? Is it going to be in the hands of just mainly large growers and small growers are growing away? Well, we see certain trends, but just because we see certain trends doesn't necessarily mean they're going to take continue. The same way that I spoke about how the consumer is changing with food tech. Can we, can we see smaller growers becoming viable where people are paying a premium for, you know, smaller products that are grown in smaller operations with a maybe a higher standard of, of care and quality. I, I'm not sure. I, I think that there is potential for that. I also see that in the Central Valley as alone with all these innovations here, there's a lot of outside industry that's starting to understand, or sorry, outside of the Central Valley, a lot of outside stakeholders that are starting to understand the importance of the Central Valley. And like Sam said, people come here to legitimize their innovations and what they're doing. And so with that in mind, if we see more of that, I think we can see some excellent job creation. I think we can see a lot of great companies coming here more to the area as time goes on. And I, I see a lot of economic growth to where ag is still a very strong aspect of the Central Valley. But I think we're going to see more. The Central Valley eventually will become a hub of ag tech innovation. I mean, it already has. And as companies continue to come here and see this as the opportunity of where they should be, we're going to continue to see that trend. And, and as a result, we'll see the economic development of different positions and jobs and just all, all the effects there occur. So I'm 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 more optimistic about the future. I think there's a lot of great things that will come as a result of technology and, and the good people of the Central Valley persevering through the challenges we face. But with that said, I, I do think there's going to be pain and challenges and sacrifices, but I don't necessarily think it's all going to fall apart. I, I think that we're going to we figured it out many times in the past. We'll figure it out again. Yeah. I mean, 
first of all, ditto. Well said, Ben. <laughs> I'm glad that glad we got that on record. We we need to use that for advertising. <laughs> but yeah, completely agree. And Jordan, I think you nailed kind of the polarization. And depending on what side of the bed I wake up on, I'm super pessimistic or optimistic, depending on the day. But overall, I agree with Ben. I'm very optimistic. And specifically for Fresno as a city, I see a downtown being revitalized. Part of that initiative I mentioned earlier, F3, converting the old Italian bank building into this center for ag technology. And all of our universities in Central Valley, as you know, are really far apart between Bakersfield and Fresno and UC Merced. And that's kind of unique to our area. So kind of creating that hub for all these great minds to come together right in the downtown of Fresno. And because we are the area that's facing so many of these issues and bearing the brunt of drought and fire and air quality, I think that makes us even more primed to be the ones to come up with a solution as well. So I'm confident in our future. I, I feel optimistic and happy to be kind of a part of this, this revolution. Okay. Our final topic is my favorite, which is book recommendations. What are two or three books that you each would recommend to the audience? I know Ben's going to be humble, but right behind him is a, a whole library in his office. So I'm expecting some good book recommendations from Ben. <laughs> yeah. So most of my book recommendations are designed for the founders we work with. My two favorite ones are one, Crossing the Chasm. I'm looking at it right here on my desk. I just have a ton of copies here. So we just, we literally just hand that out. So that's that's helpful with understanding how to commercialize a technology and, and get some general concept of, of how that works. And then secondly, we focus a lot on sales here. So the Challenger sale is a was a very impactful book for me, learned a lot from there. So I, I highly recommend that book to understand a little bit more on the sales process as well. Yeah. Mine's also a book that sits on my desk every day as a reminder. It's a book called The Fred Factor. It has nothing to do with entrepreneurship or agricultural technology, but it's a a guy who observed his mail carrier for a year and just saw how passionate he was about his job and how above and beyond he went in a traditionally kind of monotonous job of delivering mail and wrote a whole book about inspiration he drew from watching this guy named Fred. So that inspires me daily to just go above and beyond, especially with the people we work with. Wonderful. All right. To close, where can people find out more about the Wet Center? And I would really encourage people to look through some of the companies because they're all listed, correct, that you right. support? Yeah, that's right. So our, our website is wetcenter.org. And then you can email us at info at wetcenter.org or call us. And then obviously we're physically on the campus of Fresno State at Chestnut and Barstow. So you can just drop on by and walk in if you'd like to see what's going on. We'd be happy to have you. Definitely. Also, every social media platform at Wet Center, we're super active on on all of them. Shout out to Alexis and our socials team. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn, Facebook, all of them. Awesome. Well, Sam, Ben, thank you for doing this. This has been a great conversation and I've learned a lot and I know the listeners have as well. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. Appreciate it. Fresno's best. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's best. We'll see you next time.